eight years have passed and a, a lot's happened in that time. And so what I want to do with this presentation is rather than in the past where I presented some, uh, some data, uh, some new findings, it's more about, for me, uh, these days, thinking about models, models of therapeutic action, models of how these compounds are working in the brain uh, at a number of different levels. So that's what I'm going to try and take you through. And I will begin at the molecular level where it all begins, uh, at a particular serotonin receptor, the serotonin 2A receptor that we know with increasing confidence these days is critical to the action of classic psychedelics. We uh, first got clues about that from the, uh, in a major way in the 1980s where this relationship between the affinity or the stickiness of a psychedelic for the serotonin 2A receptor was found to correlate very strongly with its potency. And I always use that example of LSD, very high affinity, very sticky, high binding potential for the 2A receptor and incredibly potent, so you only need very small amounts. You could compare that to a compound like mescaline where its affinity is much uh, much lower and you need uh, uh, much more of it to have its classic psychedelic effects. We also know now from a series of, of um, uh, antagonist pretreatment studies or where you give a, another drug before giving a psychedelic that blocks the 2A receptor, you give your psychedelic and people don't trip. So very uh, compelling evidence again for the importance of that receptor. And now most recently we have this wonderful new study from the team in Copenhagen where they've looked at the percentage occupancy of the serotonin 2A receptor and found that there's this interesting relationship between the intensity of subjective effects and the proportion of available uh, serotonin 2A receptors that are occupied um, uh, by, by the psychedelic. So um, here we can see uh, suggestions of some kind of nonlinear relationship where lower dose ranges are uh, kind of keeping within a certain range of subjective intensity and then suggestions it's a very small sample size so it's perhaps early to draw any really strong inferences about this but it's kind of fits with intuition as well that you jump up in dosage and you jump up in intensity uh, and uh, incidentally in in this range uh, of occupancy around about 60-70% occupancy, these are the kind of doses that are being given in most of the uh, therapy trials these days. So around about 20-25 milligrams of psilocybin uh, is occupying um, around about 60-70% of the available uh, serotonin 2A receptors. So we know 2A receptors are really important and then for someone who's interested in the brain as much as they're interested in psychedelics, the brain and the mind, really that's the fundamental. Uh, it's such an uh, obvious and interesting question to us why these receptors uh, are there and perhaps try and stay sober while you <laughs> ask that question. And, uh, uh, and so for me, um, synthesizing a range of different evidences, you start to get a picture which is pointing in a particular direction. And for me, it's that we already know that serotonin itself is very much involved in um, uh, plasticity, neuroplasticity, but also uh, increasingly we're becoming aware that it isn't just a simple, uh, you know, so-called happy hormone, that glib uh, phrase that people use in relation to, uh, to, to serotonin, uh, greater serotonin release, more positive mood. That's part of the picture. But actually what we're seeing is that if you uh, uh, increase um, serotonin signaling, you increase people's sensitivity 
to context, sensitivity to the environment. Um, and so that's pretty well established and increasingly so with serotonin already. But I would say that the rule is even more nuanced than that in that given the complexity of the serotonin system with its 14 maybe plus uh, different receptor subtypes that do quite different things to each other, that it seems that there is a lot of evidence uh, to link in the serotonin to a receptor specifically in plasticity and sensitivity to context. When you think of psychedelics, that kind of uh, is sort of obvious really, but um, there's a lot of uh, uh, data and research uh, not directly related to psychedelics that fits this rule as well. So we can see that um, uh, serotonin to a receptor functioning is associated first of all with brain development, so development from uh, being born and throughout uh, life as the mind and the brain and behavior uh, matures, we know that the 2A receptor is very much involved in that. Of course, learning, which is a major part of development, uh, can also um, be modulated. Uh, certain aspects of learning, low-level learning, can be enhanced with a certain uh, 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 level of serotonin 2A receptor stimulation, and also unlearning or extinction learning, so uh, reducing uh, behaviors that have been uh, stamped in. Cognitive flexibility and psychological flexibility also evidence uh, linking to a functioning uh, to those. And now we have this uh, uh, very impressive study published in Cell last year, which is showing uh, increased marked increases in synaptogenesis with exposure to serotonin to a receptor uh, agonist. So the same kind of thing that's been seen with ketamine, we're now seeing with the classic psychedelics, these aspects of the neurons that are involved very much in in, uh, in communication. Now a critical thing to stress now is stress that uh, perhaps it might be surprising to some people but the most reliable way um, to induce serotonin release is to stress a organism. Um, so uh, a lot of uh, animal literature supports that and also uh, uh, human work as well. Um, but what uh, people perhaps aren't so aware of is that stress uh, appears to um, rapidly and quite reliably upregulate or increase uh, the functioning of serotonin 2A receptors. And uh, a range of different uh, kinds of stress, levels of stress, particularly chronic stress and intense stress, uh, are associated with this quite rapid, actually, upregulation in 2A functioning. And it's worth noting, um, perhaps in the context of things like um, psychosis, that uh, sleep deprivation very reliably upregulates to a functioning, and also hypoxia. And it's easy to put these things together uh, and perhaps to see um, uh, uh, through that um, some kind of candidate uh, function that might be subserved by, the, by these 2A receptors to address that question of why do we have them, what are they for, what do they do? Um, and if you reduce that right down, you could offer some, uh, some kind of uh, construct or, or um, uh, uh, behavior um, uh, linked to adaptability, that these receptors are there for our ability to change. But perhaps there's something to be said to qualify uh, that phrase as well. Um, and that's where we'll go here. So, the serotonin uh, system, as I've said, is very complex and what dominates a lot of psychiatry today, uh, particularly treatment of mood disorders, anxiety and depression, uh, are um, 
the administration of uh, SSRIs. And uh, although they're going to work in a very broad brush way on the serotonin system, we know that we have a lot of a particular um, serotonin receptor subtype, and they're also heavily expressed in stress circuitry. And unlike the 2A receptor that when stimulate, stimulated excites the host neurons, uh, when you stimulate the serotonin 1A receptor in this stress circuitry, it actually has an inhibitory action. So if these receptors are expressed in large numbers in the stress circuitry postsynaptically, you stimulate them with serotonin, they're going to, uh, it's going to moderate the activity in those regions. It might moderate responsiveness within the, the stress circuitry. And this is, has already been put forward as a, a candidate mechanism for how SSRIs work, that they um, mitigate stress, they take the edge off things, they stop the bottom from falling out, major crises, you get by. You can get by if you're medicated with your SSRIs. But if you're treated with a psychedelic, and, and I should stress psychedelic therapy, perhaps the model is quite different. And there it's not about getting by, but it's about some kind of transformation. And if we think about this, and we use these drugs as kind of models for understanding the serotonin system, maybe it's telling us something fundamental about serotonin, that in the context of adversity, we might have a system that helps us get by, or perhaps if the stress is particularly acute and intense, we might have a system for saying, no longer just getting by, no longer just tolerating, you need some kind of fundamental shift, some kind of change. And so that's what I'm suggesting these, this uh, 2A system uh, does, that it's a kind of fork in the road, a kind of pivot, uh, the states that, that uh, that uh, high levels of 2A stimulation puts you in, these pivotal mental states, something I'm working on with a, uh, a student uh, from the US, this idea that um, uh, the psychedelic state is just an example of a more fundamental state, a pivotal mental state. Perhaps you might think of other examples like um, uh, apparently naturally occurring or perhaps uh, induced through um, certain ascetic practices, uh, uh, um, states in which um, spiritual revelation or, or um, development might occur. That's interesting that it skipped over. Um, <laughs> who did that? <laughs> it was a DMT entities, of course. Um, but uh, this fork in the road, what's, what's going to mediate whether you move towards illness, that the world and things get strange, and you have a background of trauma, and you're living in in hard conditions and, and you move towards a psychosis or you've intended to take a psychedelic and uh, you're with some very supportive people in a very perfectly nurturing, wonderful environment with music and you move towards, uh, towards wellness. It's a challenging idea, I know, both for people who are thinking about uh, psychosis, who think, oh, maybe it's not inevitable uh, that you move in that direction, but also psychedelics, because a lot of people I know uh, would love to think and believe that psychedelics are intrinsically healing, that the therapy, the context, perhaps isn't so essential. I've still not decided on that one, but uh, I think the, the most part, uh, uh, it's uh, probably the case that um, the therapeutic uh, effect and model uh, cannot be extricated from the engineering of context. Even with microdosing, for example, I think there's a lot of implicit factors that are probably kicking in to move people in a positive direction with that. Now, this slide, intentionally, I'm going to skip over because you, 
it, I just always get stuck on it, going through the evidences, but others are going to be doing that here. You'll have heard those kind of talks previously. So the only thing that I want to say in this slide is that, yes, there's a developing evidence base with modern studies looking at the uh, therapeutic safety and efficacy of psychedelic therapy, but let's emphasize therapy. All of these modern studies have had music. All of them have had guides. Um, and so uh, it's easy to assume, and mostly it is, it is an assumption, remarkably it's an assumption that set and setting are important, but really we, we have quite few studies that have actually tested it because it's difficult to do. Uh, we've got one where we uh, did our observational um, uh, work on people taking psychedelics out there in the world, different contexts, in that kind of uh, um, context, we can we can measure the different contextual factors and then add a bit of evidence to that assumption, uh, which is critically important, uh, I feel. So, yes, this is a model, uh, um, I'm certainly not the first to say it, that, uh, that it's a synergy, uh, this model, between a drug action and psychotherapy. It's neither one uh, in isolation. Uh, my view is that you can't just give the drug and have the same kind of safety and efficacy profile. It's only when these two come together that you have this, this hybrid model and a synergistic interaction between them. And I also like to think of it as a middle way uh, in between these two. Uh, it's, and it can be a bit of a tightrope uh, at times trying to, to, to walk that. Not all proponents of psychotherapy and the classical, you know, say psychoanalytic depth... depth um, psychology model are, are that uh, um, uh, uh, warm necessarily to psychedelics, perhaps because they have a kind of drug, anti-drug bias often, and then those who are more classically um, uh, biomedical in their thinking also struggle sometimes with this, uh, this principle that this is a therapy, that it's a, it's a drug times uh, context. Um, uh, interaction that, that, that we do in this work. So this, uh, this, this model is, is, is useful, I think, these different factors that feed into the state that we know with increasing confidence from all the different studies that are being done around the world is such a reliable predictor of the longer-term outcomes. If you get the experience right, uh, uh, said very broadly, then the outcomes follow. So let's turn our attention now onto um, thinking about mental illness and, uh, and, and a model of, uh, of what might be going on, perhaps not with every uh, uh, psychiatric disorder, but a, a lot of them. And to do this, I am borrowing from the um, predictive processing, predictive coding model that you'll uh, hear about at this event a lot. You'll hear about wherever you look when you, you think about the mind and the brain these days. It's pretty much the dominant model that we have these days of how the mind and the brain works. So it just stands to reason that it can be useful for thinking about mental illness and thinking about effective treatments for it. So here I've got a kind of Venn diagram with different psychiatric disorders and proposing that the space where they overlap is around habits and biases. But would it be enough to just say that because perhaps gardening or playing your guitar or something is a kind of habit and, and you couldn't call that pathological. But really it's the weightiness that, that we apply to habits of mind or behavior and or behavior. It's easy to think of uh, habits of behavior in addictions, for example, habits of mind in depression with the negative cognitive biases that get stamped in and then 
kind of cloak uh, everything that we see when we look both uh, uh, internally and uh, externally. But this is the point that these, these ways of, of, of thinking and being, particular ways, pathological ways, become too heavily weighted. And then it would just stand to reason that with an effective intervention, you'd first want to relax that weightiness. You'd want to de-weight those pathological uh, habits and biases. And it's easy to propose, it makes a lot of sense intuitively and now with some evidence that that's what psychedelics are doing. And if you can de-weight these habits and biases, then you can work towards their revision. And that's what's being done uh, with the therapy. And so just to convince you that this is the way our minds and brains work, that we have internal models that are probably to a large extent innate and, and also, of course, uh, developed. Um, but the point is that we have them and that when we're presented with uh, patchy information or in, incomplete information, and just simply for the sake of efficiency, these models very much determine the way that we experience the world. So we can read text like this, where the letters are jumbled up, but if the first and last are in order, you manage to uh, read it. Or you see a video like this, where, oh, it's not a video. <laughs> so uh, where the motion is implied, and because of that, it activates internal models that would ordinarily, in the real world, see motion when you see something like this. Uh, and so really, you know, as Anil Sess says, you're kind of hallucinating uh, uh, reality. Um, and uh, uh, that's how we experience the world. Um, and so uh, if we think of a pathology like depression, and this is a quote from interviews that Ros Watts did with our patients six months after uh, treatment with, um, with psilocybin. Actually, I think this is a quote from someone um, uh, reflecting on their depression and, and reflecting on that kind of anhedonia that's very characteristic of depression. Uh, saying that, uh, and this is someone who, who, who ordinarily loves flowers, loves orchids, but saying that they would look at orchids and intellectually, cognitively understand that there was beauty, but they couldn't experience it. They were disconnected uh, um, from the sensorium in some way because likely they have this introspective uh, bias. They're looking inwards all the time. They can't look outwards. It's been too heavily weighted, that inner negative uh, focus. What are the causes of, in a sense, this isn't going back far enough to think of uh, um, kind of root causes of psychopathology. And of course, uh, that's a real um, uh, uh, hornet's nest in a way because it's, uh, it, there's, there's never really one cause. It's often a composite thing, a combination of things that have happened in your life, things that are around you, things that are within you in terms of your, your particular genetic makeup, um, uh, predisposition, um, but um, I think it's worth thinking about these, these kind of complexes that can develop in us that become weighty, that get a kind of particularly intense gravitational pull like a, like a black hole and everything uh, uh, gets kind of sucked into that center. Uh, I think uh, there's a lot of missing information here and sort of food for thought. Uh, but I, I tend to think that, that that kind of notion around trauma and things clustering around it speaks to similar notions that have been um, uh, uh, written about by the Stan Groff, for example, around the systems of condensed experience. But that very interesting and, and, uh, and, and very real issue and major question of 
Uh, why do people kind of gravitate back to uh, uh, specific trauma or complexes around trauma under psychedelics? Um, uh, and uh, um, I wonder, um, yeah, whether something analogous to these kind of black holes in the soul might be one way that we would think of it and how they suck everything in. Um, now, uh, here is a representation of, of hierarchical predictive processing, this model of how uh, increasingly people think of, of how the, the mind and the brain work, that you have a kind of uh, uh, landscape um, into which um, you can visit different states, and in psychopathology, might, you might visit certain states um, uh, too much and get stuck, stuck in them and, and, and uh, also find it difficult to get out of them. Um, and importantly, this hierarchical representation of how the mind and the brain work says that at the higher level, you have these kind of summary models, and the self is a very good example of one that kind of cloaks, again, everything that you see and experience and kind of uh, uh, feel. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Um, and these, uh, these high-level models, perhaps particularly, are those that might be um, affected uh, by psychedelics in a major way that, that can help us characterize uh, the phenomenology of the psychedelic experience. In psychopathology, you can think of these high-level models like the self um, as being especially heavily weighted and perhaps weighted in a particular direction, a negative view of the self, for example. In the language of predictive processing, a heavily weighted prior uh, is a precise prior, but we can, we can also call it a heavily weighted belief or assumption, essentially, it's the same thing. Uh, the important thing is that these summary models will not allow for a lot of the potential information that could be felt and experienced to be experienced. It's kind of sort of summarized out uh, and kept silent as a, as a result. And so under a psychedelic, the idea with this uh, relaxed beliefs under psychedelics model that um, I recently introduced with Carl Friston is that when you uh, relax the weighting uh, of these high-level priors or these high-level beliefs, uh, then that's going to allow for information that before was being summarized out to percolate up into consciousness and to be uh, experienced. And we might have some clues um, about what instantiates those high-level beliefs, priors, assumptions in our brain from our brain imaging work with psychedelics, where we see aspects of high-level uh, uh, cognition or correlates of, of high-level cognition um, uh, uh, being broken down or collapsing uh, under a psychedelic. A classic one is the alpha rhythm that's especially pronounced in the human brain and especially pronounced in the developed human brain, in an adult human brain, for example. But under a psychedelic, arguably the most reliable finding in psychedelic brain imaging work is this collapse of the alpha rhythm. We've seen it with psilocybin, we've seen it with LSD, We've seen it with DMT. Others have seen it with other psychedelics. You see it in humans, you see it in animals. Um, and so there it is. And then we also have other ways of looking at the brain with fMRI, for example, looking at high-level networks and seeing that their integrity breaks down under a psychedelic as well. So these are just candidates. They're just candidates, really, for, uh, what, uh, for systems in the brain that, uh, that instantiate uh, these high-level um, priors or beliefs. Um, five minutes, oh God. And so there's evidence for the model, importantly. There's two A receptors that are also in 
important, uh, oh so important, are in the high level cortex to a disproportionate extent. Um, when they're stimulated, uh, a range of different evidence tells us that they, uh, that has a, an effect uh, on the regularity of brain activity. It dysregulates brain activity. We also have some evidence from looking at directed information flow in the brain now that uh, there's less top-down influence and more bottom-up under a psychedelic. And then you can look at the phenomenology. You can look at perceptual processing and how perceptual priors lose their weightiness under psychedelics. You can look at how the mind and the brain is sensitized to context and how that fits the model. Um, and you can look uh, at the next part of the picture, really, which is, OK, these beliefs can be relaxed under a psychedelic, but what about their revision? Uh, here is a study that we did in our depression trial where we asked people to predict what was going to happen in their, in their life over the next month. Positive and negative things, and what you see in depression is people overload all the negative stuff and think that nothing positive is going to happen in their lives. Essentially, what we found there is that post-treatment, there was a normalization in a very clear pessimism bias that you see in depression. This here, this is the pessimism bias. There's a little bit of a suggestion of a positive bias in healthy people. Importantly, post-treatment, people were normalized. They, weren't, they didn't shift to seeing only positive things now happening in their lives or, or, um, or, or negative. They were just more accurate in their predictions of future life events. So that's an example of a revision of uh, um, previously aberrant beliefs, that, that pessimistic bias in depression being remediated or normalized, um, uh, made well after psychedelic therapy. We've looked at other high-level beliefs like uh, uh, nature-relatedness, kind of ecological um, values, seeing how they're promoted after psychedelics, how um, authoritarian beliefs and attitudes are de-weighted uh, after psychedelics. Um, and then the mediators that we know, the quality of the experience is important. And Leo Roseman, his really nice new scale, is trying to tease apart whether a challenging or difficult experience under a psychedelic is going to uh, lead to um, some kind of breakthrough, um, emotional breakthrough, a cathartic breakthrough uh, that may mediate um, uh, therapeutic outcomes. And then the uh, short story with this uh, analysis and study was that indeed it does. Emotional breakthrough is, is another key factor to add in with the so-called mystical type experience or spiritual experience or peak experience for the humanists. Uh, or, um, or the challenging experience that maybe predicts um, less positive outcomes or maybe worse outcomes. If you have a breakthrough, this third factor, it seems to be um, especially important information for determining the longer term outcomes. So I love that quote. I've never read the book, but I've just ordered it actually this morning. Jack Cornfield, uh, I think, came up with a quote after the ecstasy, the laundry. And so just to bring us back down to earth, when I um, uh, presented this model in the context paper, um, there was an obvious thing missing, and, and everyone knows it's obvious now, but uh, a little bit like set and setting, um, even though we have very strong assumptions about it, it's not science until you define it and measure it and demonstrate it. So that needs to be done now with integration, and of course the assumption is that it is going to be a, another key mediator of the therapeutic outcomes. So to end very quickly, I'll say three things, psychedelic survey, psychedelic survey, psychedelic survey, please sign up, because a lot of these uh, evidences that we have now, or let me rephrase that, 
a lot of the evidence that we will have over the next five years, I think, for the importance of these different factors that feed into kind of predictor models of therapeutic outcomes with psychedelics come from this naturalistic work. It's a really good way of, of collecting big data. Uh, perhaps, yeah, sure, it doesn't have the, the rigor that controlled studies do, but you can do it at a fraction of, of the price and you can look at things that are actually very difficult to do in the lab. Like, uh, you, you don't really want to provide a suboptimal context when you give a high dose of a psychedelic. You don't, of course, but people just do that. So if people are planning on taking a psychedelic, um, why not, uh, why not uh, turn it into science by signing up and, and providing baseline data and then we can track how you do as these different com components come in or, or, or they're neglected and then we can look at therapeutic, therapeutic outcomes and, and, uh, and, and all of this, you know, the agenda with it is, is can support harm reduction, safer use of psychedelics and finesse therapeutic models um, probably they'll just reinforce the assumptions that we have already, but if we subscribe to the value of science, sometimes we're wrong, and sometimes we need to revise and update, uh, and that can be a humbling experience, but it's, ultimately it's, it's, it's essential and it's how we progress. So to end by thanking those who've supported our centre, thank you to the team, some of whom aren't on here unfortunately, we need to update that, that picture and have another, another team photo soon, but uh, um, just yeah. Thanks to the supporters and thank you for your attention.